Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Some upbeat music to start what will undoubtedly be an upbeat episode of the Into the Impossible podcast with my friend, my YouTube mentor, uh, Dr. Sabina Hassenfelder, joining us all the way from Germany. Sabina, how are you doing today, doctor? I'm great. <laughs> good to see you, Brian. It's good to see you. I see you every Saturday night here. I don't watch, uh, you know, internet on on the Sabbath, which we'll get into. But uh, uh, there's so much that's been going on since you made your last appearance, and I can't tell if you are uh, getting more optimistic about physics, more pessimistic about physics, or more of the same. What do you think about philosophy, and is it dangerous for physicists to engage in it? Well, uh, depends on what you mean with dangerous. Um, so, is it is it dangerous career wise? Probably yes, um, because as you say, a lot of physicists are quite skeptical that it's worth the time. Um, so, if you spend a lot of your time on philosophy, um, they would consider it a waste of time, and that's not good if you want to get ahead in your job. Um, but personally, I would say every good scientist, not necessarily physicist, but scientists in general, um, needs a solid philosophical background um, just to understand how science works in the first place. Um, so I, I really think you can't do without. Um, and if, if you don't have those bases, it comes back to haunt you. <laughs> Uh, because you'll you'll be confusing what you actually know with what you just believe. What do you make about <clears throat> the upsurge or the propensity that physicists have for hype um, compared to the other sciences? Do you think physicists hype uh, potential results or you know newfound discoveries more than another fields, uh, for example, like biology or chemistry? Well, I think it, it really depends very strongly on the field. Um, so if you're looking at the foundations of physics, I dare to say the answer is probably yes, um, uh, especially if you compare it with fields like public health, uh, medicine in general, uh, cancer research, that kind of thing. And I suspect that part of the reason is that it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know, I mean, you get something wrong when it comes to health. People may die, right? So so everyone's like super, super careful. I mean, at least they should be super careful. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I mean, you, you, you say something wild about the multiverse um, or I don't know, some particle that no one will ever see anyway. What does it matter, right? So I, I kind of feel that physicists, you know, take a lot of freedom uh, because they figure it doesn't hurt anyone and it helps their own career. And uh, one apology that I've also heard is that people just think, well, it's inspiring and it might young people to get into science and, and that kind of stuff. Right. <clears throat> and of course, the biggest scale things that we talk about is, uh, is nothing less than the size of the universe on its biggest scales. And then, of course, the smallest elements of nature, elementary particles, and, and maybe what happened at the, at the boundaries of the origin of time, the origin of, of space, if such a thing took place. I wanted to ask you, I recently saw a paper uh, that you put out a couple of weeks ago 
about uh, averaging processes and general relativity. And I want to get into that. Uh, before I do, I wanted to, um, uh, to talk about, you know, what we've learned in the last few years, both since Lost in Math was published three years ago, and, uh, and, and where that knowledge is coming from. I, I see a lot of, you know, references to new experiments and, and, and discoveries, even in your paper. You mentioned Virgo and LIGO and, and impl uh, implicit observations from gravitational waves from black holes, etc. Uh, and yet, um, it doesn't stop people from kind of maybe being overly optimistic about what future experiments could do. For example, I've heard a lot of talk recently about LISA, a gravitational wave observatory in space that could do for cosmology what LIGO has done for astrophysics. What do you make of such claims uh, that you could perhaps detect you know, primordial uh, tensor perturbations that you could detect these averaging processes that we're going to talk about in your paper or the effects of these of, of, of perhaps observables related to your recent paper. Do you think that this is another example of, you know, people kind of overestimating the power in this case of experiment, not math? <clears throat> so the, the thing with the gravitational waves is we kind of know they have to be there. And we've already seen them in a particular wavelength range. Uh, and so what the new experiments can do is that they would be looking at uh, larger distances. That's why you want to put them into space, uh, because it makes it easier to use lasers over long distance uh, without uh, getting um, <laughs> a headache from the noise and so on and so forth. And um, it, it makes sense to me. I mean, n of course, no one knows for certain um, how large the amplitude is in which wavelength a regime, you can only estimate it. And that's exactly the same thing that they have done for the solar mass black holes, which we're now seeing the gravitational waves of. And of course, they were off <laughs> with the estimate for a long time, um, which is why all the other, the earlier mm -hmm. experiments didn't see anything. And, you know, at some point I thought everyone was like, oh my God, we'll never see it, right? <laughs> because you get all these null results. But eventually they did see it. And uh, why is that? Well, well, it's because uh, gravitational waves uh, were uh, a great prediction, right? Coming out of a very well-confirmed theory, general relativity. Um, and it, it would have been inconsistent if we had not seen them at some, at some point. And um, it, it's certainly true that if we see these uh, gravitational waves from, from supermassive black holes or for, from the early universe, um, that would teach us something really new about the cosmos. Right, because there's always the notion bigger is better in experiments too, and I'm as guilty of that as anybody with my cosmic microwave background experiments now uh, participating in the largest, most ambitious uh, one ever funded, um, although there is one on the horizon called CMB Stage 4, which is even bigger, more expensive, uh, but that's in the uh, proposal phase still. Uh, we'll see what the decadal survey comes out with. But I wonder, you know, um, a general question I've always wanted to ask you, when we look at something like cosmology, and in your recent paper, you, you talk about these memory effects and, and so forth, but you start with the standard model of cosmology. Um, but it's, it sort of strikes me as unusual in that cosmology, it, we don't really have a good solid sense of the initial conditions of the physical system. We have boundary conditions, but in physics, as I understood it, we always need to have initial conditions. How is it possible to, to um, you know, do the types of analyses that you do in this recent paper of averaging, of coarse graining, um, and then highly nonlinear system of GR uh, when we don't even know 
how the initial conditions led to the Friedman, Robertson, Lemaitre, Walker universe. How is it okay to do such a thing? Well, it's a model, right? So the way I look at it is you make certain assumptions, uh, then you derive the consequences, and then you look at what the data says. Does it work or does it not work? Um, I mean, you, you can always ask this question about the initial conditions. Where do they actually come from? Uh, how do we know? Uh, and uh, it, it creates this chicken and egg problem, right? Because there's always an earlier state that gave rise to your initial condition. Where did that come from? Well, it came from an even earlier state, <laughs> right? Um, so eventually, uh, we just treat it as an assumption that goes into the model. And I mean, in this paper, which is a fairly short paper, that's making a teeny tiny contribution to a, a huge problem, what I think is a huge problem, Um we uh, just use the simplest example just to show uh, it's possible to do it and hopefully also to stimulate some other people to look at it uh, because the math gets complicated very, very quickly. General relativity, the theory that we currently use for cosmology, um, is a nonlinear theory. So that's the kind of theory that has chaos and all kinds of uh, difficult things. And what happens in this kind of theory is um, that you can't just average over the equations. Um, it, it's it, it, in general very, very difficult to average over nonlinear equations and um, this is something which people do all the time if they use climate models, for example, and also in condensed metaphysics, uh, where the equations are nonlinear. And um, this this always made me think, like, why aren't we doing the same thing in general relativity? And so there's there's a long story in the literature where people have argued we don't need to do it because the corrections would be teeny, teeny, tiny, and it doesn't really matter. Um, and then there's some other people who have said, well, actually, those arguments don't really work. And then there's some other people who have said, well, actually, they do work. And, and so there's this constant back and forth uh, between uh, theoreticians arguing. Uh, but there are very few mathematical techniques by which you can actually calculate it. And so what, what we did in the paper was uh, to say, well, let's take uh, one of those techniques um, that people use in condensed metaphysics and just try to apply it uh, to cosmology as a whole. And uh, that way you can actually um, calculate some correction terms. And unfortunately, we have not been able to um, calculate how large they are, but we were able to calculate um, their functional dependence um, on, on the Hubble rate. Let's jump into Pepper's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Pepper play sets. Pepper Pig, inspiring kid confidence. Yes, and you address the Hubble tension as a you know pot potential um, <clears throat> participant in, in some of this. I want to ask you um, about about these kinds of papers and you know a critic of yours. And I, I understand there's a couple of people that criticize you, Sabina, uh, but <laughs> but not me. Uh, but you know, a critic might say, "Well, what are the testable predictions of of this new you know course graining?" And and even you and I have both engaged in in you know discussions of what counts as science and falsifiability. Is Popper the final word? Is he like Girdle? No. Um, but I want to ask you um, to do a thought experiment. So imagine you and I go back to 1864. There's a young Scottish uh, mathematician named James Clerk Maxwell, and he comes up with these four equations that will later bear his name. And in so doing, he comes up with a physical model for how these equations support the propagation 
of electromagnetic radiation. And it, and it involves this wonderful thing called the gear and a whirlpool and a, and, and a vortex and all this nonsense. And he goes on Twitter uh, because let's say in this example, Twitter exists <laughs> 160 years ago, and he tweets about it. I've got this great idea. Would we not have said, look, not only is your theory crazy, it's already demonstrably wrong, you know, that we don't, you know, we use these microscopes, we don't see any gears or what, what have you. Uh, and uh, is there such a thing as requiring falsifiability too early, in your opinion? Is that a mistake? I wouldn't call it a mistake, uh, but it's certainly not conductive <laughs> to the full development uh, of an idea, right? Uh, I mean, though I'm not entirely sh sure that I understand this example correctly, because Maxwell, after all, did predict something that was also falsifiable. And then you could have said, did you actually need all these gears? Or wouldn't have been wouldn't it it have been sufficient to just start with the fields, which is exactly what we do now. Um, so so I'm not sure that Maxwell is the best example in this case. Um, but uh, in 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 general, there's certainly a risk um, that you um, prevent a promising idea from ever being fully developed uh, just by yelling, "It's not falsifiable," uh, because no one's figured out how to falsify it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I see this even with things like the Hubble tension and, uh, and even things as diverse as aliens. You know, we, we, we have in the U S this recent report released by the Pentagon, uh, you know, which is like our military, uh, headquarters and it's, it's kind of ambiguous and a lot could be read into it. I, I wonder if you've been following this. I, I know you did a video about, um, you know, credibility and believability and Bayesian inference in low signal high noise environments um can you say something about this as applies to things like um the the problem of, of aliens existing which which has a lot of attention both both uh, in the u.s and in europe what, what do you make of such things why why is it happening now um, well why is it happening now I, I don't think that it just only started happening now like this has been around for a long time like people have always yelled i mean not always but for, for the past 50 years or something there have been lots of reports of uh, you know un unidentified flying objects and, and that kind of stuff and, and every once in a while it bubbles up and then it calms down uh, and so there, there are just unexplained things uh, in nature. Um, and I think there will always be. And of course, it's perfectly justified to ask, like, what is it? Can we look at it closer? Um, we want to know what it is. Uh, right. So uh, I, I think that that's perfectly fine. I mean, and that's uh, how I how I want society to be. Right. There's something we don't understand. Let's uh, let's look at it. Um, that's that's perfectly fine. Where I get a problem is when people jump to conclusions that are not really supported by the data. In regards to UFOs and with data, astronomers, as my friend Sarah Scholes, who wrote a book about alien sightings and so forth, uh, pointed out, you know, astronomers have a vested interest in discovering aliens and spacecraft and, and so forth. Uh, in part, it was instant tenure, right? probably a Nobel Prize, although you know how I feel about that. And, uh, and then secondly, you know, we could shortcut 20 centuries of, of learning about physics, perhaps. So we have the most incentive to discover it. You think there'd be a confirmation bias, plus 
We have all the tools. We spend every night looking at the skies with high cadence and frequencies from megahertz to, you know, to uh, well into the, uh, to the gamma ray. So every night we're studying it. And yet we've never had a credible peer-reviewed, you know, uh, paper published about it from the astronomical community. And so when people ask for data, I just, I guess I wonder, what are you looking for? I mean, data that confirms that they exist. Uh, because I, I mean, I don't know if you agree with this, Sabina, but um, the Hubble Deep Field, You've seen the image, correct? So that's that's data, I suppose, but it's really just a pretty picture. To get the data, you need the calibration, you need the flat fielding, you need the dark current, you need you need all the stuff that went into making the image. And even the image, you know, only allows you to maybe do a count or maybe some rough histograms. But what do you what do you mean by data? Like for people to see data, what would count as data even in something as as abnormal or maybe one off as a UFO or alien encounter? So uh, given right. the huge potential payoff, uh, it's certainly something that we should invest uh, in. And I would go so far to say that we're not investing uh, enough into it. So I, I don't have a big problem with people who want to see more um, alien searches, um, to put it this way. Um, but, I, but I also think that um, what, what a lot of people really have a problem with is to say, we just don't know, right? We have this video or we have this data uh, or we have whatever else, you know, uh, a blip in a curve, something like this. We don't actually know what it is. They, they have this urge that they must find an explanation, which sometimes just isn't possible. And, and so you, you end up with uh, more guesswork than science. Right. One other area that always reminds me of this is when we talk about the multiverse. And, and uh, I know you've written about this uh, as a form of religion. I wonder if just for my audience that's not familiar with your with your comment on it, could you uh, recapitulate or state what you've uh, written in the past about the multiverse sort of as a form of, of religious dogma, even though you yourself are, are obviously uh, declared secular and not uh, practicing religion, right? <clears throat> Yeah, right. So what I've been trying to get across is that if you assume that something exists which you can't observe, um, that's not a scientific type of existence. Um, and that doesn't mean it's wrong, uh, but it means it's not the subject of science. Uh, you can, of course, believe in it. So, um, you know, if someone wants to believe there are infinitely many copies uh, of them out there in the multiverse living life in all kinds of way that you can think of, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, I, I get a problem when people say that this is science, like science told me uh, there's this multiverse. Uh, science told me there are infinitely many other universes um, because it's just not correct. And, and that brings us back, by the way, to what you asked in the beginning, like why does philosophy matter? Uh, and that's one of the reasons uh, why it matters, because um, scientists who argue this way, they assign reality to some mathematical structures uh, that pop up in their equations. And the question is, like, how is this justified? To which my answer is, well, it just isn't, right? Um, so, um, I mean, if, you, if you're speaking of the scientific kind of existence, like we've proved... <laughs> It must exist, that kind of thing. You just can't do it if you can't observe it. And so what about things that are in principle, I agree with you, but what about things that are in principle unobservable, 
like a singularity in a black hole. No, no one actually believes that that's what really what's really inside a black hole. Um, but maybe more importantly, uh, no one, I, I mean, no one, maybe uh, there are some people probably who believe it. Uh, but uh, I, I've worked on black hole physics for like 10 years or something. And I would say pretty much no one in the community uh, thinks that black holes are really eternal. So the b black hole horizon just doesn't just stay there forever, uh, but the black hole evaporates. Uh, this is what Hawking predicted. And so it, the black hole shrinks. And at some point, it's so small that, and this brings us back to the problem, uh, the horizon uh, has shrunken into the quantum gravitational regime. And so we don't really know what happens. Uh, but uh, presumably, the horizon disappears. And so this region inside the black hole does not remain disconnected from the universe forever. And th this is kind of what Hawking meant when he said uh, um, black holes don't exist. Uh, but what he really meant is that these eternal black holes um, that we see in general relativity don't exist um, because in, in the end uh, they are gone. Um, now, you can ask, of course, do we actually know this? <laughs> to which the answer is no, we don't, uh, because we've never seen a black hole evaporating. So it's, it's, it's pure speculation. Um, but I think that given that the theory actually tells you, you should be able to observe it in principle, um, it's, uh, it's not completely disconnected from the world. It's scientifically... Um, well-funded, I would say, to talk about what's inside a black hole. So if it if that wasn't the case, you know, if, if it was really um, completely disconnected and we could never observe anything inside it, I would say exactly the same about the inside of black holes than, than uh, I say about the multiverse. Uh, I would say, well, we can never observe it, um, so why talk about it? I mean, there's the, the other thing is, of course, that in, in principle, if you cross the black hole horizon, you can very well observe what's in, inside the black hole. You just uh, can't come back and tell us about it. <laughs> so, Sabina, I wonder if you've had a chance to read this wonderful new book called The God Equation by Michio Kaku. No, I haven't read it, but I've heard of it. <laughs> so at the end of it, he concludes with the exact same words uh, of Stephen Hawking, which we were just talking about in the context of black hole evaporation, he concludes, when we get string theory, we'll have a theory of everything, and we will know the mind of God. And uh, first of all, I think there are a lot of, you know, people that use the word God a, a little bit too uh, cavalierly, not, not for religious reasons, just because I don't think they really know anything about God <laughs> or like Western philosophy and, and or Eastern mysticism at, at all. But, but anyway, leave that aside. Michio is a, a good character. But the thing that really troubled me about his statement uh, was that uh, I asked him, I said, Michio, you know, recently we had G minus two results. We had the LHC uh, beauty experiment results. We have Hubble tension. We have all these things. Never once did I hear a string theorist tell me, look out for this particular deviation of the muon's magnetic moment because it's right here in string theory. So that's number one. Number two, I had Kamran Vafa on my show. And I said, you know, come on, Kamran. Uh, what, you know, what does string theory ever predicted? And he said, no, 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 you're wrong. So there are many things about string theory that can be predicted. We have many encouraging results. The work of Beckenstein-Hawking, which you just mentioned, Sabina, um, they make a prediction. And here's the prediction. 
These predictions are, for example, if you take the electron, it has a mass. And if you compute the mass of the electron in the fundamental units of physics, which is the Planck mass, it's a very tiny mass, something of order 10 to the minus 23, a very tiny number. Do we have any prediction that the electron mass should have this in mind without knowing there, uh, without knowing there is an electron, just knowing there is electric charge? And by knowing there's dark energy in the universe, you find a bound on the electron mass from string theory. You find a bound that the electron mass should be bounded by 10 to the minus 1 Planck mass on the upper end and above 10 to the minus 31 on the lower edge. First of all, what do you make of this? Uh, this, this I mean, if I made a prediction you know, that was uh, had an error bar of 10 to the 30th magnitude, uh, I, would be, uh, I would be a little bit embarrassed but technically he's right it did make it could have been 10 to the minus 32 but it wasn't anyway sabina what do you make of these uh claims that it's incumbent upon other physicists to establish boundary conditions and initial conditions uh and then once you do string theory has everything in it including g minus two and uh and fifth forces etc yeah, um, maybe um, he means something else by prediction than what most people mean. But uh, for most people, I think that you predict something before it's measured. Okay, so um, I, I would say what he's shown is that um, at least the theory is compatible with observations. If you look at that particular feature, I mean, let's aside the issue that it has some dimensions too much and some moduli too much and um, has a host of other problems uh, like all those supersymmetric particles which we haven't seen and in, in, in all that kind of stuff. And uh, so it, look, a lot of people think that uh, that I'm a string theory hater. Um, that definitely isn't so. Um, I think string theory had a very good motivation. Um, you know, people were trying to unify gravity with quantum theory that's the, the exact problem that we just talked about um with uh, sorry the singularity in, in black holes and and all that kind of stuff and string theory looked like it could get the job done uh because it has those uh, graviton excitations uh but it, it didn't really pan out uh, right they never actually proved that it, it solves the problem and instead it has degenerated into this um wild accumulation of different ideas that don't really fit together and that you uh, can use to fit pretty much everything. And uh, at this point, I'm afraid I get a little bit cynical because I've spent too much time with uh, theorists. Uh, if you give a theorist a sufficient amount of time, they will fit you everything. Right. So maybe the first 10 times uh, they did this calculation, uh, it, they get they got a result that was actually ruled out by observation, but they, they kept on trying and eventually they found a way to make it work. I'm not saying that this is what actually happened. I, I'm just saying I've seen exactly the same thing happening over and over and over again. You know, you fumble with your you, with your theory uh, long enough, you, you get everything done. And of course, for philosophers of science, that's not a new thing. Uh, that's exactly what they want about. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, um, I, I'm kind of sorry for string theorists, I have to say. You know, I, I wish it would have panned out, uh, but um, it, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And uh, I mean, about the G minus two, I mean, you, you can... I, this is a long-standing story. You can try to explain the discrepancy between the standard model 
prediction and the observation by adding some kind of new particles. And a lot of people have played around with this. Um, the problem is that it's kind of a rather unspecific uh, prediction, right? It could, it could be all kinds of particles, that and they all would make some kind of contribution that could be in about this, uh, the right uh, order of magnitude. Um, so it doesn't really tell you all that much. Mm -hmm. And when you wrote your first book, and you have another book coming up, maybe we'll talk about that in just a bit. But Lost in Math, you know, a lot of the characters in it are, you know, very much pro pro uh, strength. You have a delightful interview with Steven Weinberg, who sadly passed away recently. And I recommend everybody read that wonderful book of yours, uh, if nothing else, to hear uh, the kind of Gulliver's travels, you know, Sabina in Wonderland uh, uh, travelogue, where I called it the first time that you were on the heroine's journey, this famous archetype of Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand, the hero takes on a reluctant challenge and travels the world and, and then finds the magic elixir and saves humanity. And that's kind of what you did in your first book. Uh, so one can only guess what the next book will bring. But in that book, uh, of course, yes, there are a, a lot of commentary on, on you know, kind of how math has led uh, physics astray, as you talk about in the subtitle, et cetera, the, the beauty has led it astray. Uh, but I always feel like physicists have a certain type of envy of mathematicians, in that mathematicians have, at least have girdles in completeness theorem, so they can know the limits of an axiomatic system, which is testable um, or not, or consistent or not. But physicists don't have that, so we always fall back on on falsifiability, which is just something Popper came up with, and it's not necessarily written in stone to the same level Girdle, his friend Girdle, uh, had uh, Girdle's incompleteness theorem. Uh, but, you know, nevertheless, what, what else do we have? And so when I look nowadays at, at all these kinds of you know, hopes for, for, for new projects and where physics might be going, I see a lot of hope in experiment and a lot of hope in observation. Um, but even then, sometimes I, I feel you, um, you're, you're somewhat of a critic of big projects, of big science, and maybe, you know, these future circular colliders, obviously you've spoken about that, the lunar collider you think is lunacy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, at some point, you know, I was reading recently, I want to get your reaction to this, um, there was a, uh, a claim of the tetraquark, you know, the tetraquark, famous tetraquark, uh, and that was discovered and, it, you know, it was not really intended to be one of the main goals of, of, of LHC or the instruments uh, that, that detected it, but because it had enough energy, it could make this bound state for a femtosecond of, you know, four quarks. Um, so let's say we had said, oh, we don't need such a big collider like that, and we certainly don't need a bigger one. Wouldn't we have missed out on this and, uh, you know, these types of discoveries? In other words, what do you say to those that say bigger is always better? And we've always learned something. We went from uh, the first cyclotron, Sabina, here in California was 27 centimeters, and now uh, LHC is 27 kilometers. It's just enormous. And that's in less than 100 years. So uh, who's to say if we make one 30 times bigger, 40 times bigger, and put it on the moon, maybe we'll discover even more things? Yeah, uh, maybe, but uh, most likely not. <laughs> I mean, th that's exactly the problem. Like, how do you evaluate if it's a reasonable risk to take? Because we build this big thing on the moon, there are a lot of other things that we can't do. Uh, and so um, I, I want to try and defend myself a little um, it, regarding, for example, um, this uh, tetraquark uh, story. So uh, I've certainly never said that if we build a bigger collider, we, we won't learn anything. Um, we, we would certainly learn something more about nuclear physics. 
Right. For example, those uh, bound states, and there are all kinds of properties um, of the hadrons and uh, mesons and their couplings uh, and the structure of the proton itself uh, and so on that we would learn more about. And we would also almost certainly um, be able to measure more precisely the masses of some particles, their decay rates, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, that's not nothing. Um, the question is, is it worth uh, several dozen billion dollars? Right. And um, it, it comes with the problem that particle physicists usually try to find some big questions, you know, about the origin of the universe or dark matter or something to sell their machine with. And uh, that's where, where I get very uneasy because um, I, I feel like I have to tell people, um, look, that that's we have no reason to think that this machine will actually see something like this. Um, uh, so, so that's my problem. Um, I, I actually think like this trend of experiments to become larger and larger uh, is quite pathological and um, indicative of the problems in the foundations of physics in general. Because what's happening is basically... I mean, if you look at the history of physics, for, for a long time, what's happened is that um, there has been some discovery um, that led to some insight, some scientific insight that led to better technology, that led to better experiments, which led to new insights, which led to better technology and better experiments and so on and so forth. And that cycle uh, broke, basically, sometime in the 90s, 70s, uh, 80s. And uh, since then, the primary mode uh, to get better data is just to make things bigger. Uh, it gets more and more and more uh, expensive. And at some point, it just becomes an economic problem. You know, does society actually want to invest that much money uh, it, right. in, in something that might not help us all that much at this moment in time. You know, theoretically, ideally, we would be able to do everything, but um, that's yeah. not the work we Although, live Although, you know, critics, and just to be pushing back with respect to you, uh, as I have, uh, that the, you know, the Tokyo Olympics cost about three LHCs. <laughs> uh, and so and when we canceled the superconducting super collider here in the U.S., uh, although I claim that was actually really good for LIGO and Barry Barish in particular, and my friend, uh, my friend Gary Sanders, who's the new project manager for our executive project manager on Simon's Observatory, uh, they wouldn't have won their Nobel Prize if the SSC had kept going because we know what happened when the Higgs was discovered. No experimentalist won the Nobel Prize. And we also know that uh, they ended up building the LHC without needing the American money. Now, could have been better, of course. And did we lose a generation of you know experimental particle physicists? Yes. Um, and those are big things. I'm not trivializing that. But Sabina, that money didn't just go back and now now we cured cancer thanks to canceling the super collider. In other words, um, I, I don't I don't think money is as fungible. Like when we cut the budget, we didn't get like 80 million postdocs uh, from canceling the SSC. It just went into like, now we've got like the Robert Burr, you know, whatever. We've got some senator has some highway named after him or her. You know, it's we didn't get uh, return back to physics. We got it back to the budget, which you know you can estimate or you can. You know, assign whatever value you like to that. But anyway, um, 
I want to ask now about uh, about another channel, which I see you doing, literally a, a YouTube channel called uh, Sabina Hassenfelder. We'll put a link to that. And uh, it's a wonderful channel. And I have uh, been delighted to, to, uh, to sponsor, support your work. And I will continue to do so because I think you have a unique mission. You know, what you're doing, and there's a very technical term for what you're doing, science without the gobbledygook that uh, we learn in quantum field theory. Uh, where did you, speaking of quantum field theory, Sabina, um, how did you learn to do this? Because when I talk to my friends and they say, oh, you got a YouTube channel, you're not like a real scientist or, you know, like, I can't do that. It's too hard. It's too hard for me. And I say, oh yeah, I, I know you were born knowing quantum field theory, or you were born knowing cryogenic engineering at hundred millikelvin. Like, yeah, we, you just were born knowing that, like, you didn't have to work at that. Of course they did. How did you come to be, um, you know, so proficient to grow in less than a year, factor of eight to 10 followers now a third of a million people are, are addicted to your videos every saturday morning sabina did you study it did you work on it how did you come to be this at this level of of uh, of youtube uh, uh of, of youtube success and outreach success not just I mean, the, the the brief answer is i don't know <laughs> i mean you know i'm super excited people uh, like my channel um, but it's not that I have a big secret or something. I just talk about what I think uh, is interesting. And uh, so I hope that people uh, notice that uh, I, I personally uh, look into it and uh, I, I try to communicate what, what I've learned. And so the audience is kind of part of the story, right? I, I look at what uh, comments they leave, what they are interested in, and I have a list where I take notes um, and try to address questions. Um, but I mean, I think I've just done the obvious, right? I mean, you, <laughs> I go on the internet and I look at advice that other people had, um, and I've tried to follow it to the extent that I could, um, that there are always just limitations. Like I, for example, I think it might, my channel would be much, much more interesting if I wouldn't just stand in front of a green screen all the time. Uh, but, uh, I have no one to do my camera work, uh, for me. Uh, it's just, I'm just one person, uh, and, uh, th that's as much as I can do. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work with what I have. Um, and uh, basically, I'm just learning by doing, right? I try to look at what works, uh, what does not work. And I also, I mean, there's always, you must know this yourself. Uh, I mean, um, the, the YouTube algorithm isn't always that easy <laughs> to swallow, you know? <laughs> uh, so, so there are a lot of things, for example, videos that I cared a lot about that just sank to the bottom of the sea <laughs> and uh, you know I, I'm trying to not take it personally and not try to get discouraged and I stick to what matters to me uh, but but on a on a very uh, you know pragmatic basis there are limits to what you can do like and now I have to pay to other people so I have to think a little bit about uh, uh, what works and what doesn't work uh, and so there, there are trade-offs to be made but in the end I feel like uh, you know if if I, I don't enjoy it, if it doesn't make sense to me, um, then I wouldn't continue to do it. So um, I, I try to listen to myself <laughs> to some extent. <laughs> and it's very successful. And of course, you need to learn a lot of soft skills that aren't any relationship to your day job as a theoretical physicist. And those include, you know, promotions, advertisements, click through rates, thumbnails. Uh, are you completely self-taught? in those re regimes as well? Or are there tips you can give to aspiring YouTube uh, stars like me? <laughs> 
I, I really don't have any secrets. You know, I just Google the stuff and then I look at what, what other people recommend. Uh, and uh, I, I try to follow this as good as I can. I look at the statistics, uh, though, honestly, I'm trying not to overthink it because, uh, as I just said, sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Uh, you look at it and you're like, why <laughs> did this video not work? Right? <laughs> and, and sometimes I feel like maybe it was just something stupid, like maybe there was just a big headline and no one was interested uh, in, in watching this particular thing at this particular time and then the way that youtube goes if the video doesn't really take off in the first one two days you can forget about it basically yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the end of the story gets lost uh, in uh in hassenfelder evaporation instead of hockey evaporation. <laughs> <laughs> um let's get back to some physics uh what do you think nowadays is sort of uh, drawing, you know, most of your attention, whether it's positive attention, negative attention, is it things you've written about determinism, super determinism? I want to get into the, your paper from last year about that uh, before we end up. But um, free will, simulation, hypothesis, AI apocalypse, fifth force. What do you think is like getting most of your attention, or and what do you think deserves even more attention? Than it's getting. Well, um, so I, I'm afraid I'm I'm terribly boring in that I actually try to listen to my own advice. Um, and if you remember, I mean, the way my book came about was that I was trying to decide what's a promising research topic. And uh, so uh, maybe I thought about it too much <laughs> that I ended up writing this book and interviewing all these people. But in the end, I came to a conclusion. And um, I can honestly say this was not a conclusion that I had uh, when I wrote the proposal or when I set mm -hmm. out uh, writing the book, uh, which uh, was that we have to pay more attention to inconsistencies. And by this, I mean both inconsistencies between um, observations and uh, theory. That's kind of the obvious inconsistency that everyone is thinking about, but also internal inconsistencies uh, in the theories. Whereas a lot of the problems that uh, theoretical physicists and foundations presently look at are not problems of inconsistency. They are um, aesthetic misgivings. That's the way that I put it in the book. Um, and... Um, I mean, there's, there's an obvious big inconsistency between um, the predictions of general relativity and the standard model and our observations, which is dark matter. Um, so um, I basically switched to working on dark matter because at least in this area, we have observations, right? We have plenty of observations. And um, I'm, I'm trying not to do the same thing that everybody else has been doing, you know, with inventing new particles uh, and just trying to guess something. Uh, I'm, I'm going at it, at least I'm trying to, <laughs> you know, going at it more um, from the more general side, you know, what's the kind of theory that we would need uh, to resolve this um, discrepancy. And, uh, and I arrived at the conclusion that we need something that's kind of a hybrid uh, between dark matter and modified gravity. And this is why I'm working on this uh, superfluid, superfluid um, dark yeah. matter. Yeah, you had um, you had a wonderful video a couple months ago that was maybe a million views. It's called "Dark Matter: The Situation Has Changed," in which you advocate for kind of a um, you know a comatus or, or you know kind of a synthesis between methods of condensed matter physics with methods of traditional you know particle instantiations for solutions to dark matter. Um, so 
is has the situation changed further since that video uh, came out? Are, are you more kind of excited about superfluid? Maybe you could say a little bit about superfluid. I find this so fascinating. Talk about this idea, how it came up, and and what the implications could be. Because uh, superfluidity, just to take a step back as an experimentalist, fascinating subject uh, related to uh, you know superfluid, superconductivity, same mathematics, etc. Uh, in a lot of ways, as they bulk properties of uh, correlated phenomena in solid state systems or condensed matter systems. What does that have to do with the cosmos as a whole? I mean, the cosmos is at three Kelvin. It's not at, you know, nano. How does superfluidity come into play? Uh, yeah, what, what does it have to do with the cosmos? That's exactly the, that's exactly the problem, right? Um, so um, you see the, the issue with um, dark matter is, and, and we've known this for a long time, that it works better in some regimes than in others. And then we have this uh, alternative explanation, which is modified gravity, um, that <laughs> also works better in some places than in others. And these are kind of complementary to each other. And uh, what's been going on for a long time is that each side of the argument said, no, this is right, um, or no, this is right, and you're wrong. And so it's been going back and forth. And it, it didn't really lead to anything. And so I think the, the obvious answer, uh, answer, I dare to say, uh, is uh, where well, you need them both. Uh, you need dark matter in the regimes where dark matter works, uh, which is like cluster scale, CMB, uh, kind of stuff and you need modified gravity uh, mostly on the scale of galaxies because where, where you have these flat rotation uh, curves and totally fissure law and, and uh, all, all that kind of stuff and this is not originally my idea that you can do it with a superfluid but it's something that I learned from Justin Curry who I'm sure you, you also know mm -hmm. and uh, you know I remember reading this paper and at this time I was working on superfluids, but for an entirely different reason. You know, I just read this because I thought maybe it will give me some inspiration. You know, it's close enough that I would probably understand some of it. And I just thought this makes so much sense, <laughs> right? So you, you can put it both together and you can have the best of uh, either side and not worry about the worst of both uh, sides. Uh, then, of course, you know, if you start looking a little bit more in the details, it's not quite as simple, <laughs> right? Uh, and um, the biggest problem that I face is that um, this is really condensed metaphysics, which is something that I wasn't trained in. And uh, what do you do? <clears throat> Sorry, <laughs> I've been talking too much. Uh, what do you do with uh, a superfluid in a curved space time? I, I really don't know. And um, most of the people who work on it now, or, or pretty much everybody, I guess, they they come from the general relativity astrophysics cosmology side or from the particle physics side and and none of them is really a condensed matter physicist who might have some intuition as to what is going on or could actually you know look at it and say look this is a problem you need to fix this or actually uh, you know I've been playing with this kind of theory for a long time and this assumption doesn't work with this um, or there's there's an example that you could use where uh, which is this and so we so we don't have this. So we're, we're kind of, you know, um, <laughs> poking in the dark, uh, trying to figure out a way to make it work. Um, but uh, there has to be a way to go about it more systematically. So uh, you said you, you uh, saw my video about it. It was kind of a call, you know, really to condensed uh, matter people to say, look, there's an opportunity. Uh, we, we, we need some condensed matter people to figure out what to do with those superfluids in galaxies, uh, which sounds really weird. But um, 
Yeah, so I, I realize I forgot to explain how the whole idea works to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so the so the idea is that um, y- you have the stuff that kind of behaves the same like normal dark matter, cold dark matter. Um, just the particles are light, but uh, basically that's it uh, on the large scales and between um, the galaxies and so on. But in the galaxies where you have fairly um, deep gravitational potentials, I mean deep compared to the rest, <laughs> um, the stuff can condense into the superfluid phase where it can um, it has a quantum coherent um, effects uh, spent through the whole galaxy, which is like really mind boggling. <laughs> you have like correlated like Cooper pairs that span the you know, but but uh, solitons or whatever that span the correlation link to the galaxies. Yeah, so, so we don't deal with Cooper pairs, um, actually, but um, yeah, in, in principle, yes. The analog, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we, just, we just use scalar fields. You know, there's a simple thing that you can do <laughs> as a theorist. It's just a scalar field. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may, that may actually be the problem with it. So maybe, maybe scalar field is just too simple. Um, and um, in, in the superfluid, um, the phonons, uh, so the excitations over the fluid, they, they generate uh, a, an additional force. And it's this new force that adds on top of the gravitational pull and makes it look like a modification of gravity. So it turns out that this additional force, it, it has pretty much the same behavior as gravity already, So which is why it just adds on top. Hmm. And uh, so this is really neat. Uh, so you have naturally, I dare to say, you know, if I'm allowed to, <laughs> to use the word, uh, you have these two regimes of the equations that it explains why sometimes the cold dark matter stuff works better and why sometimes the modified gravity stuff uh, works better but you know the devil's in the details right yeah. i mean yeah i'm for example one completely unsolved problem is like what do you do with the solar system mm-hmm. yes <laughs> so exactly there, there's like... always some kind of magic yeah it'll work out somehow we just don't know basically yeah <laughs> the only place we know that superfluids exist for sure in the solar system <laughs> uh that's uh yeah very fascinating i'll put links to that in the in the show notes as well that wonderful video you mentioned justin curry who's a friend and i've known for a long time uh, in especially in the context of what was called originally the ekpyrotic universe, which he worked on with his advisor Paul Steinhardt and Neil Turok and others, and now he seems to not be as as intimately correlated with those uh, folks. And now we have uh, uh, Anna Aegis, uh, who's a uh, who's a scientist. Actually, I think she's in Germany now uh, as well, and she's working with Paul Steinhardt. And they have come up with with what's known as bouncing cosmology, and it it is not co- connected to this colliding membranes and so forth. And it makes a testable prediction that we shall not see any B modes, unfortunately, of primordial character in uh, my Simons Observatory or my f- former colleagues in the Bicep team. Uh, we will not see primordial B modes because they don't exist because inflation didn't take place. And I wonder, have you, what kinds of reactions you have to that to theories that are becoming more and more frequent, there are theories of Sir Roger Penrose, which also, you know, he played a big role in, in pointing out issues with inflation, obviously, uh, in the early days. Uh, and Paul, obviously, was responsible for new inflation and solving a lot of the problems that Lin, uh, Linde uh, and others took on. What do you make of this, uh, uh, of this, you know, flourishing of alternatives? Uh, I'm not asking you to say, is it right? Or is it wrong? Or, you know, can you, but they have the virtue, both uh, Roger's theory, which I don't even, I pointed out to him, Sabina, last week on his birthday, uh, that uh, his theory is unique in that it's the only new cosmology that, you know, is cyclical, but also uh, doesn't have a scalar field and makes a falsifiable prediction. In other words, 
um, the uh, Turi, uh, Curry and, and Steinhardt and Anna Aegis, their theory predicts a, uh, or, or at least Anna Aegis and Paul Steinhardt's does, predicts a that there should be no primordial beam modes, as I said, but also needs a scalar field. But Roger doesn't need a scalar field in his theory. He needs his wild curvature, but whatever. There's no scalar field. I think that's the most virtuous thing, right? Because if you're trying to kill off inflation, which has a scalar field, you'd like to not have to have a new theory that has a scalar field. So how do you react to conformal cyclic cosmology and bouncing cosmology? So what's with his Erebons? His, uh, his, his Erebons. Oh, for dark matter. Yeah, that's his solution for, uh, for dark matter. Yeah. Um, I think you can have conformal cyclic cosmology with, without Erebons. The Erebons are sort of uh, his, his, uh, his kind of formulation to, to explain the dark matter problem. But I think you can have it with just hawking uh, points and so forth. You can have it with just these eons, which doesn't, um, you know, which, which that doesn't make use of a scalar field. Er Erebons are more like particle instantiations than scalar fields, I think. Well, okay, so I mean, I'm not deeply familiar with this, so I'll just take it uh, as you say it. Um, so it, this brings us back again to this question, like, what's with the philosophy? Uh, and um, by the way, all these different theories for the early universe is one of the topics I go on about in my book, like, how did the universe begin? And uh, I think that there are two problems with, with what what people are doing. Uh, one is that uh, too many people in um, theoretical physics and the foundations um, tend to think if a theory makes predictions, if it's falsifiable, that means it's a good scientific theory. Right. Uh, astrology uh, makes right. falsifiable predictions, right? Is it good science? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, uh, right, exactly. That's the problem, right? I mean, uh, tomorrow, uh, I don't know, you will win the lottery. That's totally a falsifiable prediction. Uh, right. we, we don't call it scientific. And, and okay. so I, I I really think a lot of people have to think much deeper about um, why a theory is scientific. And a big problem I have with all these tales for the early universe is that they make a lot of assumptions um, which you actually don't need to get the predictions. Uh, and this is also why you have this huge degeneracy uh, among models that pretty much make the same predictions, right? I mean, there are some models who say, well, we see the BMOs, and then there are others who say we, we don't see them. But, uh, you know, we, we will see if we see them or don't see them, and then we will have a number. Uh, and that will not allow you to tell which of the theories was right. Why? Because they just have way too many details that don't reflect uh, in the actual predictions. And um, I mean, th this is already the case for, um, you, you know, in, in inflation. Um, it, it's you basically, whatever data uh, you throw at inflation, you can fiddle it around somehow uh, to make it work. And so I, I'm pretty sure, you know, um, if uh, you don't see the, if you do see the B modes and that runs into conflict uh, with what, whatever model it is that uh, Curie is currently working with, you can probably fix it somehow by making it a little bit more complicated. Uh, you know, it's the same problem that I was already talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and it's, I mean, it's a difficult question, like, is this something that's specific to the origin of our universe that will forever prevent us from really figuring out what uh, went on? And uh, I suspect that as long as we stay with 
um, the current type of theories that we use, which require an initial condition, we'll, we'll never be able to, uh, to really solve the problem because there will always remain this problem, like why this initial condition, right? Uh, and, and, and the other problem is also that if you have a model like um, you have a balance or something, um, generically what happens is that you have an intermediate phase, you know, which is close by what we think of as um, the Big Bang, um, where everything was simple. But actually earlier in, in this previous um, phase, it could have been much more difficult. Uh, more complicated should, uh, should have been the word. Um, and that's a problem because our entire scientific methodology is based on making things simpler. So if the universe came from something that was more complicated, even if that was right, our scientific methodology uh, wouldn't allow us <laughs> to actually figure out if that was really the case. Mm -hmm. I look at some of the virtues of it. And by the way, I think it's, it's healthy to have other approaches rather than just a monolithic monopoly that inflation and even the standard model have become uh, in particle physics. Um, but uh, I wonder, what do you make of the fundamental objection? I think Sir Roger pointed out first uh, was this, you know, extremely unlikely, you know, low entropy condition in the early universe uh, that, uh, you know, had to be instantiated either via what Alpert, I think, calls the past hypothesis or uh, in some other instantiation uh, versus having some mechanism to establish that. So in, in Steinhardt and Aegis, they have very small contractions, very large expansions, and, and those do cycle over eternity, but they avoid the entropy um, runaway problem of Tolman universes, et cetera. But, uh, but in Sir Rogers, it manifestly because the universe dilutes and all that's left are photons and, uh, and the en entropy at each eon can be quite low. Do you think this is a big problem, the problem of entropy? And I want to connect that, uh, you know, the, the, the low entropy starting point so that we could have an arrow of time? Or do you think that's another example of hype? Well... I, I wouldn't say it's a problem in that it's not an inconsistency, right? As I, as I said earlier, I think people should focus on inconsistencies just uh, because that's historically where progress has come from. But you can certainly ask, um, like, is there an easier explanation? Um, so, so maybe to, to give people uh, uh, some context, uh, no one really knows why the universe started uh, in a state of very low entropy. You just have to postulate it. Uh, without that assumption, the theories just don't work. Mm -hmm. For some unknown reason, it was at low entropy, hmm, but why? So Penrose's theory um, is a way to explain it. Um, and that's, I think, what was his motivation um, to co connect the final state to the uh, end state and uh, basically erase all this entropy. Um, but you have to ask, like, isn't the cure uh, worse than the disease? Like, is it actually simpler to do other stuff with the wild curvature hypothesis and error bonds and then gluing the end to the... Isn't it easier to just say, okay, it started at low entropy? Okay, if we're going to recreate this old pic of us that mom posted, we've got to get the outfits right. Well, for some reason, I can't find gauchos with a matching shrug anywhere. Let me try on my Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. I just use the S Pen to circle the outfit in the post, and bam, five sites to buy it from right here. Shut up. How did you... You shut it. Mom's coming. Cute outfit. Get me one. <laughs> <laughs> circle it, find it. With the new Galaxy S24 Ultra and circle the search with Google. Upgrade now at Samsung.com. Internet connection required. Results may vary based on visuals. 
And so um, I would say, given the observations that we currently have, um, the past hypothesis is the simplest we can do. Therefore, uh, it's currently just uh, the best theory that, that we have. Of course, that may not remain so. And then uh, Penrose, of course, knows this perfectly well, which is exactly why he's looking for other evidence. Like mm -hmm. uh, he, he used to be looking for circles on the CMB and now he's looking for his, his hawking points. And I mean, in principle, that's good. But I mean, <laughs> you know how it goes. I mean, if you have sufficiently many people analyzing data in sufficiently many ways, eventually they would find something. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm not saying it's wrong, but uh, there, there, there are many things you can do with um, uh, trying different methods of analysis. The last thing I want to finish up with is uh, relates to a conversation you had with Luke Barnes uh, and Justin Beerley on Unbelievable a few months back. And that has to do with uh, fine tuning, etc. And there's this resurgence of interest uh, in, the, uh, in the claim that uh, producing entropy or low entropy states require a mind, you know, organization, codes, uh, et cetera. Those are all always traceable in our experience to an intellect, a mind. Now, obviously, what they want to do is correlate that to a God, right? Which I know you don't affirm a belief in. I think if you had evidence, maybe, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get into that. But, but I want to get into, is this a problem? In other words, is the, you know, the instantiate, like when Lawrence Krauss talked about a universe from nothing, it's not really nothing because there's a Hilbert space, and maybe the cure is worse than the disease, as you say. Uh, you know, there's there's a you need a Hilbert space, and you need certain mathematical operations. You need quantum physics. Um, you need the Wheeler DeWitt equation. You need the Borg Guth-Vilenkin criteria. Anyway, all these things uh, seem to suggest that there was, since there was a low entropy state, uh, the universe is somehow finely tuned. Uh, and then, obviously, the genetic code of DNA is another example that's often used as an example of something that is highly organized and ordered and uh, not flawless, but but that perhaps is, uh, you know, provides evidence for in these intelligent design people's minds for a creator. What do you say to such people? Is is fine-tuning an issue? You and I talked by Twitter DM, which is the most efficient form of communication about a paper by Fred Adams, you know, saying, no, the universe isn't very finely tuned at all at least if you just look at star formation, which is but one ingredient. So what do you make of fine-tuning? Is it a problem? Is it not a problem? And first of all, what is it? What do you think of uh, when I say fine-tuning? What does it mean to you? Yeah, so I'm a little bit confused because normally the fine-tuning arguments uh, that people talk about in cosmology and also what I talked about with Barnes uh, are not about uh, the entropy being small, but they're talking about uh, small variations in the constants of nature that uh, would just, you know, ruin one or the other process that we believe uh, has given rise to life on Earth. Like, for example, stars wouldn't shine or galaxies wouldn't form, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and, and, and so that's what they're usually talking about. Um, is is that a problem? Um, I would say no. And actually, I go on about this in my in my book, right? Um, because um, I don't know what it means uh, for a small change for for change to be small to the constants of nature. I mean, after all, they're constants because they're constants. You can't change them. So why would I worry about it? Uh, so to me, this is really a metaphysical problem. Uh, again, I would say it's just not scientific. Um, people are worried about um, some property of the theory um, that has just no relevance for observations. So which is why, you know, it's it's not that I 
try to prescribe people uh, what they should spend their time on. Uh, but personally, I think um, nothing will come out of it because there's no inconsistency that n needs to be resolved and people are just worrying over nothing. And uh, I, I definitely appreciate that. Now, another, you know, kind of criticism that I hear often is uh, alternative theories. You know, when you talk to a string theory, I talked to Kaku and he was like, well, loop quantum gravity uh, can't even incorporate fermions. And, uh, and he kind of went off on that. And then, you know, Lee Smolin seemed to kind of not, I wouldn't say agree, but he, he did seem to be less, I don't know if you've detected a little bit less sanguine about about loop quantum gravity lately. In other words, uh, he, he sort of has uh, maybe realized that things like variable speed, constants, various speed of light, varying alpha, uh, those are not really being borne out in any data. And those were sort of predictions and, and our delayed arrival time for high frequency versus low frequency photons, you know, seems to be ruled out. I had Carlo Rovelli on twice this year and he's still very positive about it. What do you make of alternatives uh, to these, uh, to these, you know, kind of theories of everything, or at least uh, quantum gravity. Well, for one, I suspect there would be a lot of people who work on uh, loop quantum gravity who would object that those were actually predictions. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> as you probably know, it's it's very hard to actually calculate something straight from the foundation of the theory. You know, it's very heavy mathematical and you, you basically, it's a very similar problem to string theory, by the way. Um, so if you, if you just take the fundamentals of the theory, you can't calculate anything from it. And, and so what people do is they, uh, they build some kind of effective model. Uh, and th there are different ways that you can do it and people have done it different ways and uh, that way you can arrive at predictions, but then your predictions depend on those additional assumptions. Ah, mm -hmm. Uh, right. And, and so um, you can, in the end, you will always only rule out those models, um, but not necessarily this underlying structure. Um, uh, that's not a, a problem that's specific to uh, loop quantum gravity. Um, so I, I'm not sure that I fully understand the question. Uh, so, so you're asking, do I have any opinions on uh, different approaches uh, to quantum gravity? Yeah, I guess my, my, conje my conjecture is that uh, we are putting the toe before the gut. In other words, we're all fixated on a theory of, of uh, quantum gravity, but we don't even have a grand unified theory that everyone agrees with, uh, unless I'm wrong, and please correct me if I'm wrong. But so people are kind of skipping the line and, and I, you know, it's kind of hard to think about, oh, let's discover the Yang-Mills equations before we discover Maxwell's <laughs> equations. Well, yeah. So is, is this another example of, of something that's misguided or is it a sign of a healthy field that's looking for a thousand flowers to bloom? Well, I would say it's actually good because uh, the that we're missing a theory of uh, quantum gravity. That's an actual inconsistency. Um, whereas um, there's nothing inconsistent uh, about the three system the standard model not being unified. I mean, you can say, well, it's kind of ugly. <laughs> but uh, I would argue, well, that's not a scientific argument. Uh, and uh, so I think it's actually more worthwhile um, to try to solve the inconsistency between uh, general relativity and uh, quantum field theory. Now, of course, the question is like, uh, uh, which one's the right approach? And um, so it's also something that I go on about in my book, um, mathematical consistency alone uh, 
is not sufficient. You always need experimental guidance in the end. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this is why, you know, I, I'm always uh, dismayed, let me put it this way, if, if theoreticians who spend a lot of time on loop quantum gravity or string theory or something else don't seem to show any interest in what you can actually experimentally do in the laboratory. And ironically enough, that problem uh, in, you know, if I may extrapolate uh, the next 20 years or something, seems to be solved from the side of the experimentalists who just don't care that the theoreticians don't get their act together. Um, and they're well on the way on actually testing, mind-boggling as this still sounds to me, uh, the weak field limit of uh, quantum gravity. You know, they're, they're actually experimentally, uh, experimental groups are pushing um, towards this. And I think this is super, super exciting. And I really wish that the theorists, you know, the string theorists and quantum gravity people and wh what have you, would actually make a prediction for an experiment before they make the experiment. That's right. <laughs> Not the retrodiction, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, people are like, well, Einstein did it with the pair helium of mercury i'm like but he also had a few predictions and it wasn't just a retrodiction i want to close sabina because i've uh, been told that you're working on another book which i can't wait i hope that you'll come back the onto the into the impossible podcast when that's out so we can sell millions of copies of that book i'm sure uh, <laughs> but can you talk about this issue that you wrote about last october called super determinism um how does it relate to free will uh is this all an illusion because i find that with your predilection for looking for inconsistencies, I find this like almost hopeless because, you know, according to some people, everything has consciousness, the electron and, you know, and you can talk about free will as participatory or, or not. But anyway, what is this super determinism? What is this, this wonderful paper? And, and how does it feature maybe perhaps a preview of your upcoming book? Okay, that, that was a wild question, Brian. I know, <laughs> there I know. was actually five good questions. Uh, <laughs> I know, together. but you can handle so, it. So, so my, my book doesn't actually have anything to do with super determinism, I'm or afraid. Free will. Uh, or free will. Yeah, I, I do go on a little bit about uh, free will, but free will has nothing to do with super determinism. Right. <laughs> so, so maybe let me start with this. Um, so I think people get a little bit confused about the word super determinism because it has this phrase to determinism, mm -hmm. um, right? So, so uh, how can something something possibly be more deterministic than deterministic? <laughs> uh, to which the answer is, well, it can't really. So, uh, super deterministic theory is just deterministic in the normal, boring sense, and determinism has always been a problem for people who believe in free will. And there's like a 2000 year old history to this and uh, super determinism doesn't really change anything about it. You know, if you were fine with talking about free will in the context of determinism, you should still be fine with it in the context of super determinism. Mm. Super determinism really refers to a peculiar assumption in Bell's theorem that's called statistical independence. Mm -hmm. And um, the statistical independence assumption says that if you have a theory in which the measurement outcome is determined by hidden variables, so that's the kind of thing that um, Einstein believed in, um, mm -hmm. then um, the outcome of the measurement is correlated with the detector settings. And a lot of people have taken this to mean that the 
the experimentalist is kind of prevented from <laughs> twiddling the knob whatever way they please. And I look at it in exactly the opposite way. Um, you, you can twiddle the knob whatever way you please, but you affect the time evolution of the state that you're trying to measure. So, mm. it, you know, in my mind, it's, it's far more innocent than what people um, try to interpret into this equation. I actually have a paper coming out like next week about the interpretation of the statistical independence assumption that explains another problem with this uh, common interpretation. Oh, wow. And uh, But you call it hopeless. Uh, personally, I think that's the most promising thing to work on, which is why I work on it, of course. Really? Um, because um, the, the measurement problem has been such a long-standing issue. And uh, after working on quantum gravity for a long time, I've pretty much come to the conclusion that the reason we're not solving the problem with quantum gravity is that we don't understand quantum theory in the first place. Mm. And we have this update of the wave function, as you certainly know, which kind of happens instantaneously everywhere. And general relativity can't cope with it. It'll, it'll never work. So we have to get rid of this instantaneous measurement update uh, and find a theory that respects the symmetry of general relativity from the bottom up. And mm. superdeterminism can do it for you. So you, you have a theory like quantum um, theory that uh, violates what Bell called local causality. You can make it locally causal on the expense of violating statistical independence. And so that, that's why I'm excited about it. <laughs> mm. Ah, okay, great. And so, uh, can you tell us a little bit about, tease a little bit about the book that's coming out in uh, 2022? <laughs> yes. Um, so, the book's called More Than This, um, and it's about what physics says about the big questions of our existence. That's the beginning of the universe. We briefly touched on uh, this, but also uh, free will or questions like, does the universe think? Does the past still exist? Um, and um, are ele electrons conscious? You know, what, what you just uh, brought up. Uh, can we create a universe? Um, is human behavior predictable? <laughs> that, that was the worst chapter. It caused me a big headache. Um, so, uh, Every chapter is a question, and, and then I have uh, answers to it and broken down into more specific questions, basically. Well, it sounds like a beautiful book, which is ironic compared to your subtitle of your last <laughs> book. Uh, Sabina Hassenfelder, proprietress of the Sabina Hassenfelder uh, podcast or Sabina Hassenfelder YouTube channel, Science Without the Gobbledygook. Uh, you can find that everywhere that fine science videos are sold and bought. Proud to be a sponsor. I will never cancel you. We love you uh, so much here in the States and around the world. And I want to thank you for spending so much of your time with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Good to talk to you. <laughs> Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.